when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Has the UK gone too far in the restrictions imposed to combat the coronavirus pandemic? This senior Conservative MP thinks so. This is a dangerous moment in the life of our country. People feel they have been pushed too far, pushed about too much, pushed too hard. They've suffered too much. Businesses who were positively shut down by the government, alcohol and drug misuse, reduced physical activity, malnutrition, self-harm, domestic violence, suicide. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In our third summer interview special, I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Baker, the Conservative MP for High Wycombe and one of the party's most formidable campaigners. The ex-Brexit minister became well known for his role in the European Research Group, which argued for a clean break with the bloc. He served briefly in government, but has since become most well known in the Westminster Village for his efforts campaigning on net zero, the coronavirus pandemic. And we'll be discussing that along with his libertarian worldview and how it feels to be a perennial rebel. Steve, welcome to Payne's Politics. Well, Seb, thanks very much for having me on and thank you for that very generous introduction. Well, we're speaking in August, in the middle of recess. How's your summer break been? What's summer been for you? And how is it as an MP basically not being in Westminster and being in the constituency? It's always great to be in the constituency. I live right here in West Wickham. I've just had a week away in Lancaster, did some skydiving, some trail running. So I'm feeling relatively relaxed. Unfortunately, I've come down with a cold, but I've had to book a coronavirus test through the Zoe app. So it's one of those things. The pandemic has still caught up with me. But um, yeah, I'm feeling uh, um, relatively happy and relaxed. Thank you. I do want to ask you about skydiving, Steve, because this is something I know you tweet about a lot with some incredible videos. How did you first get into it and why do you enjoy it? I did a course when I was in the Royal Air Force, but I suppose when I was in my mid-30s, I was working incredibly hard at a startup on um, electronic financial reporting. And I just got to a point where I needed a break. I, I, I actually moved away from it. The time wasn't right in the market. And I took a break and I learned to skydive. And it was the most challenging thing I've ever done. It is a crazy sport and it's huge, huge fun. You can do things in free fall, which you could never do anywhere else. So uh, it's, it's a huge privilege and pleasure to have that as my sport. Very good. Now, let's talk about, you mentioned having a bit of a cold and the pandemic here. I just wanted to being, begin with where we're at in terms of coronavirus, because you're the deputy chairman of the COVID Recovery Group, which is a group of conservative MPs who have been critical, shall we say, of the lockdown measures and have really interrogated the government's thinking. We had Neil Ferguson on the podcast last week, and he was saying that given where we're at, there should be no need for future lockdowns. Now, do you think there's any possible case where you could see there being a need for a lockdown? Let's say we get a vaccine escape variant that emerges of COVID, which scientists have warned about. Could you see yourself and your colleagues supporting that in that instance? I think that's extremely speculative, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> I'm a great lover of freedom, and I've been horrified by what we have done. 
And I can't foresee circumstances in which I supported lockdowns of the kind we've had in the past. I think they'd be absolutely devastating for our society. Think just, just if you only thought that's just about of QE that's had to be done in order to build a bridge. So it's great that the economy looks like it's going to do better than many of us feared. And I really welcome that, of course, is my constituents' jobs. But look at the amount of QE that's been necessary uh, to do it. And inflation now looks likely to come in. Well, the Bank of England is compelled by law to meet its inflation target. That seems to me will have the effect of popping the bubble of government finances being propped up by Bank of England money creation. It's, it's a very, very dangerous time. So the idea of further lockdowns to me, bear in mind the state of the mental health of the nation, the huge backlog for the NHS, which is caused both by COVID and the response to COVID. You know, th- these things are all incredibly serious. I think we all need to hope and pray that there are no circumstances where the PM is tempted to lock us down again. It's a horrific thought. And how do you sort of square, because that view is one I know that's quite widely shared among Conservative MPs and a growing number of Conservative MPs. But when you look at the polling in terms of COVID restrictions, you know, there was some polling in The Economist a couple of weeks ago that said there are lots of people who actually want to keep some form of restrictions, including curfew, forevermore. How do you sort of square that? You know, how is your message not connected with a wider part of the public? Well, it's a really challenging phenomenon. Of course, people have had legitimate fears of the virus. People who have medical conditions that make them vulnerable to the virus or people who are older, of course, have legitimate fears. But this is still a mild to moderate disease for younger people without comorbidities, as they say. One of the problems we've got is, in fact, I'm sitting here now looking at a book called A State of Fear by Laura Dodsworth, which quotes some of the people who work for government on Nudge who said that the way that this behavioural psychology had been used was unethical and smacked of totalitarianism. And that's the government's own people who've done it. The government worked extremely hard to get the public to comply. And I think now we've got something of a doom loop. The, the, The government promoted terror in the public. And now, of course, the public are terrified and wish to stay locked down. But it's terminal for our society. I mean, whole swathes of our society, if we remained in lockdown we'll end up creating a life not worth living for many people if we continue with lockdown. So I I suppose I would implore the government to be much more realistic about the risks from this disease and try and get us back into a much more normal approach to life and to risk. It's a very curious thing, though, because you mentioned as someone who freedom is a big driving cause, and you can see that in all the the campaigns and things you've done in Parliament, Steve. But Boris Johnson sort of is that has that similar vein as well. If you think back to when he was mayor of London and his columns for the Telegraph, yet he was convinced otherwise and obviously has followed lockdowns three times now in society. Why do you think the prime minister has opted for that towards a different approach, the kind that your recovery group has advocated? Well, he's not had any diversity of opinion. I mean, this is something that I've written about with Professor Roger Koppel, who wrote a book called Expert Failure, slightly unfortunate terms. It's bound to put people's backs backs up. I try to make sure I've got really good quality authoritative advice. So I've worked with the LSE's Professor Paul Dolan on cost-benefit analysis and Roger Koppel on expert advice and and others around you. Dr. Ragib Ali, who's both an acute medicine consultant and an epidemiologist, has advised me. We've not always agreed, but I've been glad to have his advice. I always try and go out there and get top quality advice. One of the problems with expert advice is experts are only human too. So if you ask them to advise what ought to be done, and I think if we were to go back through the archives, we'd find Neil Ferguson sort of confirming this. They don't want to be wrong on the optimistic side. They'd much rather be wrong on the pessimistic side. 
that's fine if nothing else mattered. If you only have to worry about coronavirus, then that might be okay. But the problem is there's all the collateral damage, and that's where Paul Dolan's work comes in. We need to look not only at the splash of policy, the lockdown and what it means for the virus, but we also need to look at all the ripples. You know, we've seen that time and again. You close restaurants, what does that mean for the supply chain for restaurants? And enormous numbers of people have needed bailouts and found themselves in trouble. So, you know, you say to people, protect the NHS, and so they end up not presenting for a cancer test. So when they do present now, they end up that their cancer is much more advanced. I've been reading about that from specialists in the field on, on Twitter. So I think that the Prime Minister just didn't have the diversity of advice which would, would have enabled him to make different choices. What we need in the aftermath of all of this is really serious scientific work to establish whether each of the mandated non-pharmaceutical in- interventions, shutting things down, was actually worth all the harm that that it did. So, for example, what proportion of fatal infections were acquired in care homes or in hospitals associated with somebody, say with a comorbidity, going to hospital in relation to that comorbidity and getting coronavirus while they were there and subsequently dying? If we were to go through all of that and find, as I think we would, that quite a material proportion of deaths were associated with having been to a care home or a healthcare setting, well, then that puts the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the lockdowns and restrictions in an entirely different light because no amount of locking down healthy people at home can prevent people catching COVID in hospital. These are questions. I'm trying to avoid making assertions I'm not qualified to make. I'm saying that I'm really concerned that we've established a whole range of precedents that our liberties are contingent. I think those of us who'd read the European Convention on Human Rights knew that public health was a reason why our liberties could be infringed. But suddenly now it's plain that our freedoms are, even to see our family or in some cases, you know, single people to see their lovers, as we've discovered, you know, is against the rules. And so this is, this is a huge transformation in our relationship with the state. Of course it is. But the interesting thing about this, Steve, is that obviously the UK is not the only country to have done lockdown. Lots of other countries have done this too. And obviously, if you're saying the Prime Minister didn't have himself open to enough advice or enough different views of scientists, then if you look at Italy or France, for example, who have had similar lockdown measures, you know, you would have to think that a lot of people are all receiving the same sort of advice. Do you see what I mean? It's not just a UK thing. Well, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And I think the role of global institutions like the World Health Organization are very important. And there's nothing conspiratorial about this. We've set up global institutions to give us advice, and then we rely on it. But there is some diversity. So obviously, Sweden, which there's a huge row about, but I would encourage people to go back and look at Sweden. We can go to our world in data and compare how different countries have done. It seems to me when I look at deaths per million in, say, Germany and the UK and France and elsewhere, it doesn't seem to make very much difference, and indeed Sweden, very much difference what major lockdown measures one adopts. Broadly, you get the same pattern of deaths per million. And if you look at the USA, there's variation there. So if you compare, say, uh, Florida and Texas or California and South Dakota, there is some variation. And that will give, again, serious scientists the opportunity to study which of these lockdowns and restrictions was really worth doing. But yeah, of course, there's a tension between the advice to a prime minister from within the country and the advice, as it were, coming down from above from global institutions. I don't want the UK doing the wrong thing just because everybody else is doing it. I mean, that kind of herding would be a terrible mistake. Now, 
obviously, as I said, this is one area of government policy you're skeptical on. The other one, which I know you've been writing and, and talking about recently, is net zero. And this is a very hot topic this week because obviously we've had the latest IPCC report on this. What is your view of the kind of the mood among Conservative MPs on this? Because again, you've got Boris Johnson, who is a sort of libertarian minded prime minister, yet also he is sort of taking the same mainstream view here. And we've seen reports, so we're recording this on Wednesday, of Conservative MPs raising their concerns about the cost of net zero. Where do you think this debate is going to land? And where do you think the prime minister's personal views are on this? Because he's been sort of quite active on the green agenda over the past 18 months. Well, climate change is a really important, of course, phenomenon. It's real, it matters, and we should do something about it. Clearly, our admissions have contributed to climate change. But there's effectively, to me, four conversations which keep getting mixed up. Why we need to do something. What are we going to do? Well, that's in law, get to net zero by 2050. Then there's the how questions, how the detail of how we're going to do it. And then the what if questions, like what if we go faster, slower? What if we do, don't, and so on. But I've really focused on the how questions. So although I'm fascinated by the science, you know, I used to do thermodynamics professionally. I'm a qualified software engineer. I'd be very interested to get into the science. But really, these are all questions, in in a sense, decided by others and decided elsewhere. I mean, people who follow me on Twitter can see that I do pay attention to it. I'm absolutely not challenging the science. I'm saying, all right, how? Because at the moment, it does seem to me that if we were to get, for example, a lull in the wind in the winter on the direction of travel we're heading, we would end up, as I've put it in a newspaper article, shivering under duvets in the dark on cold winter nights. People are going to find that they're being required, not asked, required to fit heat pumps. And that will be very expensive for them because, of course, the cost is not only the heat pump and the cost of running the heat pump. It's uh, re-insulating your home. It's possibly putting in bigger radiators or underfloor heating. These are big expenses. Now, maybe many policymakers can afford £10,000, £20,000 occasionally on a major investment like a heat pump. But I represent Wickham, which has just come out worst for food insecurity in the country, to people's surprise. So I'm extremely wary of how we get to net zero. And I have to say, what we do should be based on what the report actually says. Because one of the things that hasn't made it through into the public discourse about this IPCC report is that the extreme scenario that the IPCC saw as most likely in 2013 is now judged low likelihood. That's actually great news. The scenarios are, if people are interested in the technicalities, RCP 8.5, SSP 5 to 8.5, and there's another SSP. They assume the world would massively increase its consumption of coal in the future. For example, replacing natural gas with coal and replacing nuclear with coal, replacing wind and solar, even abandoning gasoline for cars and using coal to liquid as fuel. And that sounds ridiculous, and of course it is, and it won't happen. And yet, the scenarios most referred to in the IPCC report with 41.5% of mentions are those extreme scenarios which aren't going to happen. Even the IPCC says they're unlikely. I would say they're implausible. If you then just rewind, see what's been said by the Secretary General of the UN. He warned that it would be putting billions of people at immediate risk. But that's actually, it seems wrong compared to what the IPCC report actually says. It doesn't say anywhere that billions of people are at immediate risk. So I want us to act on climate change. I want us to do sensible things. But I'm, I'm very afraid that if the public are given no choice, because of course democracy should allow the public to change policies, if they're given, given no choice at the ballot box, but they are subjected to immense costs, which dramatically change their ability to heat their home, 
go on holiday, have their own car, etc. I don't think we've quite realized yet how much is at stake if we don't actually ground ourselves realistically in the science. So I'm afraid that we're going too far too fast. What we need to be doing is, is looking at solutions which are economically and politically viable using existing technology. And I add using existing technology because the Prime Minister made a joke about using nuclear fusion power. He said we were on the verge of a major breakthrough. But of course, he was joking. We've been on the verge for 25 years. <laughs> and it, it won't be funny in 25 years So if we, if we haven't delivered fusion. So where's Boris? Well, I've never thought of Boris as a consistent philosophical libertarian. I've certainly got a wild and uncontrollable spirit. He's an old-fashioned power politician, and I think he's perfectly comfortable with big government as long as he's the one pulling the levers. I'm an unrepentant old English classical liberal, <laughs> and I'm, so I'm very sceptical about power in the state. I think this thing about net zero is an interesting one because obviously it is just said by the prime minister and people around, this is something we have to absolutely get to. And before the end of this year, he said that they will define a route towards getting there. And I think it will be interesting to see where the public debate goes on this, because as you said, filling in the gaps is going to be incredibly difficult. And no country has really put forward a comprehensive plan for actually getting there. But you must, of course, be aware that there is a real risk that this debate could get hijacked by climate sceptics, which you said you're not. You're not someone who is denying the existence of climate change. But there are still people out there. And you could see how the debate goes in that direction. How do you avoid that by making sure you still are dealing with the threats that we will face? Well, I found myself getting in trouble for using this phrase, but I, I would say we need to be radically moderate. <laughs> what I mean is it's not to just have some kind of word soup. It's to say we need to be radical in our interest in the subject and human prosperity and well-being, you know, radically committed to doing the right thing, but moderate in what we actually do and how we proceed. And of course, whether it was Brexit or whether it was the lockdown and the COVID stuff, there's always extreme elements in any political conversation. And the trick is to just ignore them, I think, for the most part, if, if they are, you know, the conspiracy theorists. Anyone who, like me, has seen behind the curtain of the way that government works, particularly having been a minister, will know that, that the state really couldn't operate a conspiracy without it leaking. It is fanciful to have these crazy conspiracy theories. What there is is a consensus. And actually, when I emerged in May with my article in The Critic, Torsten Bell at the Resolution Foundation tweeted something along the lines of... Uh, having had a consensus. And that's part of the problem, I'm afraid, because all the time, like HS2 and like being in the European Union, we can drift along for years with all of the political parties and policymakers all telling one another that there's a consensus. But until the policy's been tested with the public, you can't tell what's going to happen. So I think it's a statement of fact to say that between the referendum, the EU referendum, and the 2019 general election, we had a political fiasco over Brexit because the political class was absolutely at odds with the result they'd been handed by the public. And so it went a bit viral on Twitter when somebody picked it up because I'm not saying Brexit's a fiasco. I think still think Brexit's a hard thing to do, but the right thing to do. But between those years, we certainly had a political fiasco. And I fear we will have another, probably worse political fiasco over net zero if ministers don't level with the public and carry them through changes which Patrick Valance is telling us uh, will be very great. 
Before we go on to your politics and libertarianism, you obviously you mentioned you were a Brexit minister in government. I think you were offered a job by Boris Johnson, but turned it down. How do you feel about that? Obviously, you've obviously continued your campaigning and developed a different reputation. Do you ever regret that? Would you ever like to go back into government? Well, I would have loved to have gone back into government, but as people can tell, I try to put this without seeming boastful, I suppose, but I'm afraid I believe in things. And what I mostly believe in is human prosperity. And I believe the long lesson of history is that human prosperity is best advanced through liberty under the rule of law, strong property rights, freedom of contract, equality before the law, not after it. So (laughs) I don't regret turning down the job I was offered by Boris. I was offered the opportunity to become a Minister of State in the Brexit department after the remaining functions had been stripped from that department. So Michael Gove had been given the job I did as a parliamentary undersecretary of preparing to exit with or without a deal. But as I said to Boris, Dexu's not doing the negotiation. There's no legislation left to do. And you've just given the job I did as a pass to Michael Gove again in the Cabinet Office. What is the, it's a total humiliation, pointless to join this department. The only way we were going to get the Eurosceptics to back a Boris Johnson compromise deal, which was, it was inevitable we would have, I had to be in one of two places. And again, it feels strange to say it now, but I think history will bear me out on this. I either needed to be on the back benches to do what I in fact did, which was assist my colleagues to get something from government, enough from government that they felt they could vote for the deal, or I needed to be the Brexit secretary. But what I couldn't do was anything else. You know, when I turned down the first job, Boris was good enough to offer me a second Minister of State job in government, one which I would have absolutely loved to do. But as I said to him then, how can I possibly? They'll say I've been bought off and they'd be right. So, again, I think I'll probably say without too much fear of contradiction, I've absolutely sacrificed my prospects of a political career in order to do what I thought right on Brexit. Well, okay, so now I'm on the back benches with a degree of influence, well, there's basically five things that I think are major threats to our prosperity then. We need to rebuild our country following lockdown, and we need to make sure we don't have unnecessary lockdowns and restrictions in future. We need to unleash our potential as we leave the EU. We've got to have domestic regulatory reform that is equal to the international trade policy that we've delivered. I remain extremely concerned about QE and what cheap credit and QE means for all our lives. And the fifth big project I've taken on is uh, Conservatives Against Racism for Equality, where I had a recent intervention about taking the knee. We've got to learn to be kind to people and get away from all this dogmatic ideology and ask ourselves as Conservatives, what would it look like, again, to radically care about people and their equal prospects, their equal treatment by others and before the law, but be actually moderate in, in delivering that equality and making it real. Because it, it's, it's crazy that I've been in politics 11 years. One of the first things we did was pass the Equalities Act in 2010. And yet still we've got problems of racism and people feeling the consequences of racism today. So I, I agreed to become chairman of the advisory board of, of CAF. Now, this is a really interesting thing, Steve, because obviously, as you said, you describe yourself as a classical liberal, which takes a sceptical view of the role of the state and is quizzing often the mainstream consensus on these sort of things. The Conservative Party is not in a particularly libertarian mindset at the moment, because as you mentioned, obviously, I'm sure you were delighted Boris Johnson was leader and delivered Brexit. But a lot of the policies and things that he's implementing are big state things. The state is getting bigger. Government spending is at huge levels. How do you 
you know, you, you must feel uncomfortable about that. How do you square that in your mind? Well, of course, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it. But it, the Conservative Party is a massive coalition all the time between, I, I hope my colleagues won't be offended, but in a sense, mere Conservatives, people who wish to avoid too much change and are comfortable with power, and classical Liberals of one flavour or another. The Lib Dem Party is basically, a, they have a coalition too, of course, but they're basically Social Democrats. And the Labour Party is, again, a statist collectivist party with a broad coalition deeper into the left. So that leaves that, from my point of view, there's two kinds of politics which the world actually needs, which are beneficial to the public, in my view. One is conservatism, and the other one is liberalism of the old classical kind. And both of those kinds of politics are in in my party. So I, I do sometimes struggle to be comfortable with my party, but equally I'm determined that it, the Conservative Party is the best hope we have for decent civilised government. So I'm sticking with it. But my goodness, it is hard sometimes. What I think is going to happen, though, I think as inflation comes in and the Bank of England meets its mandate, I think that is going to crystallise some extremely hard choices on spending. If people look at the fiscal sustainability report from the OBR, they'll see that the the COVID pandemic and the borrowing that results from it basically catapults us forward, I don't know, 20, 25 years in the debt projections. And so all of this points to a crystallisation of some extremely difficult choices, which give me no pleasure about age-related spending and the role of the state. So I think that before Boris Johnson is done being prime minister, whether he likes it or not, he's going to have to find some classical liberalism within him because the alternative will be, I think, changing the mandate of the Bank of England to something that allows them to keep the spending taps flowing through QE. And eventually that will lead to a massive inflation. There's an old saying that you can keep printing money all the time people believe that you will stop. Well, if they change the mandate of the Bank of England to keep going, market participants will understand that and then we'll really be off to the races with inflation. So I, I think these are historic times of proportions that people have not yet truly appreciated. If you combine lockdown and restrictions, leaving the EU, net zero, people's really profound worries about race, and put all that with the public finances and QE, put it all together, this is going to create an awful soup of problems that we're going to have to overcome. But I'm clear the way to overcome them is to do what conservatives have always believed in, which is freedom under the rule of law, strong property rights, freedom to contract, equality before the the law, all those good things, an agenda that Disraeli could be proud of. And do you ever feel sort of uncomfortable about this? Because often you hear reports about, you know, how government whips are always trying to force people into line and trying killing off rebellions of this kind of nature when the government's, you know, trying to introduce different lockdown measures, if it was vaccine passports or you name it. Like, how much pressure do you ever personally come under? And do you ever feel guilty? about going against the party line? Going against the party line is always extremely difficult and painful. I mean, even when it's a relatively easy choice, it's still a very difficult thing to do. I got elected as a Conservative MP, and I would like to always be able to vote with my party. Some of the whips are my personal friends, personal friends and allies. You know, Mark Spencer and I get on extremely well. Uh, You know, these are not enemies. These are friends, and they have a difficult job to do, and I respect them for seeking to do it and do it well. But, you know, I think our party, on the one hand, there's been a lot more rebellion in the last few years than is healthy. But on the other, we've all learned to live with it. But what I would say is, 
when I refounded the European Research Group, and the irony is, when I refounded it after the referendum, it was to unite the party. I had people from all wings of the party involved, and I was reaching out to people like the then Legatum Institute Special Trade Commission to talk about trade policy. Amazing privilege to talk to their trade negotiators from all around the world, including the guys who negotiated NAFTA. You know, an amazing privilege. What I was doing was trying to unite the party and bring the ideas that we needed to leave the European Union well, bring all that into Parliament. But unfortunately, of course, it morphed into what it became. But I recognise that I have probably done as much as anyone, probably more than anyone, to make effective rebellion possible. But I've now offered Graham Brady, the Chief Whip, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, various mechanisms by which we could end all of that. And I really hope they take them. But we basically need to get disagreement back into private means so that the public isn't troubled by Tory MPs very volubly disagreeing with one another. Because that's, of course, the danger is that obviously split and divided parties tend to not win elections. And if, you know, if you've mentioned a whole range of issues there, which are all going to be very potent over the next couple of years, and if the public do see lots of rebellions, it be it on net zero or be it in terms of on fiscal policy or what have you, then that lack of being united obviously leaves a potential entry for Labour to come along and say, well, actually, we're the ones who are united. Yeah, I think Labour are a very, very long way indeed from being united, as I'm sure you can articulate better than I can. But as you asked me earlier, was I, did I feel guilty about ever rebelling? I've never really felt guilty. That's not the right word. But I've felt uncomfortable. I've sometimes felt despairing. I've certainly been under, during the Brexit process, the most extreme pressure. And it's all been extremely unpleasant. But equally, we won a big majority in the 2019 general election, despite all the splits that we'd had. I think as we move forward, people have got to get their heads around the idea that technology today has completely transformed politics. My, my first secretary, she became my office manager, but she, was, she started as a secretary in the typing pool in Parliament. She's retired now. But she told me that when she first started, there were more members of Parliament than there were secretaries in the typing pool. Whereas now, to cope with the huge volume of correspondence we get through all channels, I've got five staff now, and I need them. I could use more staff. But the combination in particular of WhatsApp and Twitter means that fits of temper in particular, leaks, these things mean that you can get a very public disagreement very fast. So I think anyone's kidding themselves if they think we'll ever go back to the politics frankly, which I think never existed, a politics of old where everything was done privately. It's not going to happen because WhatsApp and Twitter in particular not only make it easy to campaign, they also make it easy to make terrible mistakes politically. Yeah, and finally, because I'm I'm very interested in the way WhatsApp has changed politics because you've always had people organising, as you said, it was often done in private in the House of Common Tea Rooms or in one-to-one meetings, whereas when you have WhatsApp groups, which is, I think, where a lot of the organising for the ERG happened during those Brexit wars, and I'm sure it's where your colleagues in the COVID research group operate too, that's obviously contributed to make it easier to rebel, but I think it also encourages a particular mentality as well because if you're able to broadcast your views to your colleagues with the knowledge that they may end up getting leaked and end up in the media somehow, then it can force people into sort of taking, I think, either increasingly, you know, aggressive views on things, but it can also encourage people to speak out in ways they might not have done before. I mean, if it wasn't WhatsApp, it would be Signal or something else. But yes, you're right, the secure group chat is both a blessing and a curse. I'm in so many groups, it's very hard to keep up with them all. 
But in terms of what does it mean for the public, well, in a sense, it, it's been a real benefit to the public. You know, as we were setting up the bailout schemes for the coronavirus response, I don't know what we would have done without WhatsApp groups of MPs able to feed in, particularly to PPSs, ideas and, and demands and, and needs from businesses and individuals across the country. I mean, the system worked absolutely at full chat with members of parliament earnestly representing their constituents' concerns to ministers coordinated overwhelmingly by PPSs. We were getting people home from overseas. We were designing bailouts, helping the government to design bailout schemes, steering them where they needed to be. And actually, without that immediacy of being able to give input to ministers, I don't know how we would have served the public in the way that we have. Obviously, there have been some shortcomings of the coronavirus response from any point of view, particularly I'm thinking of the excluded. But let's not forget that the government did, in fact, very successfully build a bridge through things like the uh, COVID uh, job retention scheme, the furlough. So um, the technology, like all things, is for good and good and ill. And I think it's the job of responsible politicians to try and make sure it's used for good in ways the public can be, be proud of. But Net zero in particular, I'm, 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 what I I'm, know I'm doing is forcing a conversation which will have to happen sooner or later. I'm not actually trying to organise defeats for the government because there's no question of them happening. With Steve Baker, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this interview special of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're feeling cheerful this August, then leave us a nice positive review and rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. We'll be back next week with another interview. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.